Welcome to Nepal Now. My name is Marty Logan. I've followed human rights issues for much of my career. I even worked for the UN Human Rights Office in Nepal soon after the civil war ended in the mid-2000s. Back then, Nepal's own Human Rights Commission was quite insular, focused on overcoming the huge challenges around the conflict, using the few resources it had available in a sometimes hostile environment. I left Nepal for six years, and when I returned in 2016, I was surprised to see that the Commission had a much louder voice, at least on social media. It belonged to Mona Ansari, one of the NHRC's commissioners and its spokesperson. On Twitter, Ansari, Nepal's first female Muslim lawyer, did much more than post institutional updates. She used her voice to swiftly call out human rights abuses and other injustices and to call on the police, government, and other institutions to play their roles effectively. The six-year tenure of Ansari and the other NHRC commissioners ended in October, so I thought it would be a good time to hear her assessment of the team's work in a period when the government was mostly dismissive and at times highly critical of the commission. In our chat, we talked about her work at the NHRC and Nepal's Women's Commission. We also discussed her family's modest roots in Nepal Ganj, in Nepal's southwest, and the challenges of working as a high-profile public figure who is also a minority. By the way, this is our last episode of 2020. Although the year was a bust, it did see the birth of this podcast, so it wasn't a complete disaster. Thank you to everyone who supported the idea and its execution, including all of the guests who have generously given their time, and to you for listening. As always, you can let me know what you think by emailing me at marty at martylogan.net or by chatting with Nepal Now on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And now, my conversation with Mona Ansari. Mona Ansari, welcome to Nepal Now podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. So I know that uh, you were very busy as a commissioner of the National Human Rights Commission until about two months ago. It was a very high profile job. Uh, people who followed human rights like myself saw you on social media a lot, particularly on Twitter. You were very busy. And it's like I said, it's been about two months that you've your term has ended. So how are you feeling now? Are you getting a chance to relax? Are you enjoying life? Are you taking it easy a little bit or still busy? Yes, I was very busy while I was working in the Human Rights Commission and Women Commission. I have gone through 10 years, very extensive and busy life uh, monitoring human rights violation, making some um, some key key effort, uh, raising a voice of voiceless uh, and um, uh, connecting to people with the national to international level and uh, especially uh, grassroots voices. Uh, yeah, then then I found myself, I am a totally lost in the, my professional career. I forget to my children. I forget mm-hmm. to my family life. So now I am with my family, but it's still not fully because of uh, it's a big political uh, 
turbulence in country. And then now I have started thinking how to protect the civil and political right of people. So with the sometime with the family, children, and then uh, most of time for the people. Right. Okay. So it, it, it really sounds like that it's something that's in your blood, as they say, this kind of work. And I want to go back uh, many years. I did read one story that really stuck with me about how one of the things that really motivated you to do this kind of work was a story about um, the ownership of your family land. And the story I read was that your father had been working, uh, or your family had been working this land, kind of a public land for a long time. And at one point, your father was given the possession of the land. He was given the papers to the land. But then someone else came and said, no, 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 this is my land. And they made a claim for that land. And you, you were in class six at the time. And this whole incident, this whole episode, really made you start thinking about you know what kind of work you would do and how you could help people who who didn't have so much power uh in dealing with with the law and this in this sort of situation is that a true story is that one of the things that got you thinking about working in law absolutely um uh, Marty, absolutely, this is a true story, how my family suffer with the, uh, living in a very critical condition because we don't have a house. That was the small piece of land my father uh, where we lived. That was a public land, actually. At that time, uh, the people in Nepal who are who are living in the same land, that land is uh, goes to the same person. Just you need to pay the taxes and all those things. And my, my father got that uh, authority after paying full tax and everything. Yeah, and then suddenly one landlord nearby our house, he came to claim. He, he won a lot of land in Nepal Ganj. Uh, and that uh, that was a very uh, very very depressing moment for us as any children. Uh, we we left our house uh, midnight. The landlord people came and threw all those stuff on the road, and we were like uh, no shelter, even no nothing to have where to go and how to how to sleep. So if I remember those days was very critical and uh, very, very psychologically affecting on us. And then later when uh, my father returned from the Kathmandu, he was, uh, he came to Kathmandu to file a case in the Supreme Court against that landlord. But at that time also he lost, he lost and then, um, uh, and then uh, like our life uh, kind of uh, gone very differently, very differently. We, we live in um, uh, one of the area it's called um, vegetable market. There is one room was uh, actually built for vegetable market. And then it was room we authorized to live for a while, not for longer. Uh, so the life has been very miserable at that time. 
my mother is uh, alone she don't know anything because she never had the experience to go in the um, out of the home because she's totally housewife and she don't know what to do how how can like uh, right. protect us it's it's a difficult to talk about that also that part yeah and then later my father and uh, my father some friends uh, said like because i was a very vocal children in the family and he said to me uh, why don't you join the legal field and i said this is a good idea after my 10th class and uh, i went for my entrance test and i got the chance to join the law college right but in in you know after many years it did have a, a good ending it's not ended yet but certainly what happened afterwards and that motivation like you said took you to law school uh and you be, you became the first uh, muslim female lawyer if i understand correctly and then as you said uh yeah absolutely right absolutely right and yeah. then on to the women's commission now in between i think you did some work with some after finishing your schooling or your your law you did some work with some ngos and ingos and i was wondering you know why did you choose to go to the law the women's commission because i'm thinking that working with ngos and ingos possibly the salary could be higher and you'd get a chance to travel and maybe go abroad but working with the women's commission i think would be more kind of a simpler job no so why why did you choose to get out of the ngo and ingo sector and work for the women's commission why i chose the women commission because of um, the context of uh, women in nepal how women are uh, suffering and it's a uh, salary sometimes doesn't matter but this is a part of my you know responsibility when i get this offer that i'm also is a very hard to decide whether i should quit my international job and go for a women in commission and uh, and it took uh, like um, two three weeks to decide that and i i choose uh, i choose oh this is the right time when the when the first constituent assembly had just uh, finished election was just to finish and uh, i got the offer and then i decided to go well this is a mo- more more important time to to be responsible in the national position and uh, to to bring lot of uh, story lot of uh, legal framework kind of uh, you can put your all effort to women voice should be heard so i think that that is a strike on me and i decided to join the women commission so jumping from your work with the women's commission and then nhrc you joined the nhrc in 2015 and like you said you know you'd been with the 14a sorry 14 you'd been with women's commission and working in the law field and human rights for some time I think even in 2014 there was some issue over whether or not the NHRC was being respected being um listened to by the government whether its recommendations were being acted upon by the government I think that was already contentious 
So before you joined the NHRC, did you wonder about whether or not working in that institution would be an effective way to use your professional skills? Actually, I heard many times uh, that the recommendation of Human Rights Commission was not acted as the recommendation made by Commission. Government is not uh, much serious uh, taking uh, those recommendations. You know, whenever I travel from the Women Commission, I, I, I heard the same things. Whenever I met uh, civil society before joining the Human Rights Commission, I heard the similar kind of things. And the people of the conflict victim are um, led behind. Their, their voice is unheard. And when we appointed in 2014, October, Anupra Sarma team, uh, people have uh, like a high expectation because uh, he played a very important role while he was in a Supreme Court. So my expectation was that, okay, this is a very strong team, very strong and highly knowledgeable team. So this team will make a lot effort. Like for me, uh, I also can uh, be uh, like uh, campaigning, doing uh, regular activities, uh, making a government more accountable, raising a voice of uh, voiceless. So these things are like uh, striking. And as the Human Rights Commission holds the mandate of uh, accountability, legal drafting, um, playing a role to bring people to government. In, in, in my thought, uh, that was like a whole dream, you know, whole dream. How I expected uh, before joining the Human Rights Commission. Later, when I in the Human Rights Commission, then I realized, okay, well, this is a very powerful institution. This is very important institution where we can do the lot of things. But sometimes I say, very unfortunately, we were not able to play according to our mandate you know, uh, for the conflict victim, for freedom of expression, for protecting a civil and political right. So sometimes we are, we are not like uh, much assertive, though I think whatever we have done is, uh, is, uh, is good enough. Okay. In recent times, after you've, your mandate has ended and uh, since October, I've also read a couple of articles that you've written. Uh, there was one in Kathmandu Post. For your assessment about the NHRC, two things that really struck me are, first of all, civil society. And you seem to be saying that civil society needs to question whether it did enough. What I'm wondering is, there's so much room for improvement. There are so many things that could be better. Why couldn't civil society be more effective? Is it, is it because of political divisions? Because we, we both know how divided Nepal is by politics, how big a role that politics plays. Or is, is there some other reasons why civil society couldn't, as they say, rise to the challenges? and be more effective while you were at the NHRC? In Nepali civil society was uh, known, I'm, I'm putting a was known as in a very vibrant civil society, you know. 
But then later, when the constitution was drafted, and then a constitution, uh, and people from Tarai, people from Taru, women, they all are unhappy. They all are unhappy, and there is their voice. Uh, whether their rights are uh, going to be uh, fully included in the constitution, according to civil and political, and then a social and cultural right. But, but at that time, when the constitution was drafted, the half of country people were on the protest. You know, women were protesting, Tharu were protesting, indigenous were protesting, Madesi were protesting. But none of the civil society took a side and saying, these people are right. So this question is here, why the civil society were keeping silent when the Tikapur Tharus were tortured, when the Madesis were killed? Uh, yeah, you know, very sad part, the, the police officer in first time, uh, such, a, such a mob uh, killed the police officer. That was very sad part. Very sad for Nepal, very sad for me, very sad for the human rights society. So, so coming on the civil society question, this is a, this is a time, you know, since a few days of changing political context, why civil societies are keeping uh, their mouth jip uh, up, why they are not talking about all those issues, why they were failed to raise the voice in 2015 when all the people are raising their voice. Uh, at that time, some of the civil society said, these groups are unnecessarily uh, protesting. No need to protest for that. Why they are silent? Why they are not uh, uh, taking a principle of human right? You know, principle of human rights said, you need to be impartial, you need to be independent. And you need to be any time to create, uh, to, to, to put a government uh, accountable. So this kind of civil society we need, not like a political, uh, in the name of political party civil society. We don't need that civil society. Okay, so that, that is very clear when you say that we don't need political party, civil society, but is that different than saying that civil society is also divided along ethnic and caste uh, and, and maybe geography? Is that, are those things also why they couldn't come together? Or are you really saying that politics is the main thing? Actually, uh, you know, Nepal's civil society is a kind of elite group-led civil society, you know. And then after in 2003-2004, uh, people came from like a marginalized community. They are raising their own voice, you know, conflict victims. They are very much strong and sufficient to speak for their own right. Tharu's are sufficient to speak their own right. Muslims are sufficient to speak their own right. So if uh, these people are speaking on behalf of themselves, they are the civil society. So no need to hear all the time in one caste group leading the civil society. 
where is the inclusive civil society and and when these kind of people are different caste group different ethnic group are raising their voice these elite civil society groups people said like oh you are madesi you are tharu you are women or you are this religious group i think this is the wrong criticism right okay just to move on again about your assessment after leaving the nhrc another point that you made that i wanted to ask you about is you said that the international community could have done more and the way i read that is the international community is not tough enough it could take a stronger position with the government and if that's true why would the international community not want to be strong with nepal because nepal is not a big powerful country nepal is not china so why wouldn't the international community push nepal harder to do things like revise the transitional justice laws international community uh, have to be put to their clear position how to end impunity and uh, to to apply rule of law and human right this need to be common goal so international community is somehow fail here to stand on end impunity that's why i question all the time where is the donors why donors is uh, not making uh, their voice heard you know because uh, when i go through the donors funding they have a lot of funding on rule of law and human right if they are putting their money for human right and rule of law why they cannot ask government accountability why why they cannot uh, say here is a gap in uh, transitional justice mechanism and transitional justice law why they are not able to make out the, this voice and and you know i just remember a long time ago is maybe 1994 or 1905 you know there was a big movement on women's right to property that is also part of the equality and at that time i heard world bank and some of the international organizations said commonly if you are not going to pass this law we are going to stop funding so if we are receiving the money why they are fail fail to uh, fail to ask to government or why government is uh, fail to address this issue and um, in the international forum uh, our track record looks very good on the piece of paper but when we are coming back to home the same thing going on look at the appointment of the all the commissions look at the appointment of the transitional justice body and we need a credible institution we need a accountable institution who can raise the voice of people not the voice of government so here is the international community need to stand for the people's agenda stand for the rule of law and and our constitution also they say the same thing i'm with you i'm also a bit confused about why the international community 
doesn't do more. One thing I've heard is that in terms of transitional justice, the position is that until the law, until Nepal revises the law, the international community will not engage. But like you said, by providing funding for various human rights and governance programs, they are already in fact engaging. So that does seem confusing. And I guess I should ask the international community for an answer about that. I think it's a now, now it's a modern, it's a, it's a time to recall the international community's uh, mandate also. I know sometimes they receive a pressure, sometimes, and hard pressure. Look, look at the, some international, con, I mean, to international donor, especially donor group. They have a kind of human rights group also internally. They discussed the progress, the, the failures. So if they, they have a clear human rights working group, they have to raise the voice. Where is the failure? Where is the progress? They have to analyze that stuff as well. Talking about international affairs, the government or Nepal is now on the Human Rights Council again, just re-elected for its second term before the first vote. I think you said at the time that you thought Nepal should be focusing more on so many important domestic issues. But, but regardless of that, they've now, you know, they went through the first term, they were re-elected to the second term. Some people also argue that by putting Nepal on the Human Rights Council, they will live up to the responsibility, they will develop their human rights activities, both internationally and domestically. Do you think there's any chance that they will improve their human rights record because they have a seat on the council? Or would it be better if they were not on the council? When Nepal elected in a first uh, member state in the Human Rights Council, at the time, uh, we hope a lot that uh, Nepal is going to make a very constructive role on in South Asian context. But I have seen a less, less progress on that. You know, and then uh, even not progress within the country also, you know. And then a second election, the same I said, okay, well, you lose the first term to, to, to put your effort on engaging people. Yeah, I know multi-stakeholder dialogues, the multi-country dialogue is happening. But what is and where is the progress? Internally, internally, Nepal also signed with the people's movement, the CPA, we call the CPA, you know, Comprehensive Peace Accord. But the sign, after signing the con, uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement, if we are part of international, uh, like uh, Human Rights Council, and then we are part of the UPR, the most important things we are missing here, we forget uh, that uh, to give a justice, to provide a human right to people. We forget. We are talking in the high-level forum. We are talking in the high-level uh, dialogue. But we forget our people. because They are waiting for justice. Since uh, 
one decade. They are waiting for justice. 15 years have been waiting. It's a too long time when child is born and then a grown up. Now he's a college going student, but he don't know where is his father, who killed his father. So these are things is unanswered. I wanted to ask you a bit of a different question now. You, as I mentioned earlier, you have been very active on social media especially from my experience on Twitter, where I follow you. Uh, you're very outspoken. That was part of your job with the NHRC as spokesperson. But even now, you, you're still very active on Twitter. And I'm sure you get criticism many times um, in such a high-profile position and speaking on social media. But in particular, in May, you were attacked on social media for a visit you made to India. It was just at the time of the lockdown, and I think people were very critical of you for leaving the country at the wrong time. And you said at that time that people are attacking religion. They have been attacking me whenever I write on issues of marginalized people, and I have been facing gender discrimination. How big an issue was that? Was that a really big problem for you? And does it continue to be a problem for you being attacked and trolled on social media? They actually uh, target me a lot uh, since uh, when I joined uh, social media, you know. Not only social media, when uh, I, I spoke on any public uh, debate, I mean, people have uh, agree and disagree, but attacking on the personal level is different thing. You can you can check. Uh, I use the social media to to make uh, people aware, to raise a voice, to to create a wider wider experience. Actually, and uh, being a human right activist, uh, being a human rights lawyer, social media is one of the platform where you can um, engage people, create your voice. I don't know, when I came to Kathmandu for my job, and then I joined the to National Women Commission, I noticed that uh, some of the elite uh, women group uh, feel threatened. I don't know why, because I'm outsider, outside from the Kathmandu. I'm an outsider because I'm not a Hindu. I'm a Muslim woman. I'm a marginalized. That's the reason. And somehow when I, I was in a school, I read, uh, I, I read uh, we have a very cohesive society. You know, I, I practiced because my hometown is uh, Hindu dominated, but we, re, we, we live very harmoniously in, in my hometown. Now coming on the COVID, you know, when I was in a leave, at that time, country is not declared for a lockdown. Country is uh, free from the COVID. Our former minister, Yogesh Vatrai, made a very strong comment. And he issued a statement saying that Nepal is a COVID-free country. People can come for 2020 tourism year. I noticed all those things when I gone for my family wedding. And, you know, this wave came from the... Um, for like uh, religiously attacking, we came from the India, especially. 
even in India, Muslims are very much uh, facing a lot of threat. And the same wave uh, came to Nepal. I just uh, went to my family wedding ceremony. It is just uh, for a few days. And when I travel from Nepal to India and coming back from India to Nepal, at that time, at that time Nepal was not uh, uh, enforced the lockdown. And suddenly, uh, when I was uh, traveling from Nepal to Kathmandu, I noticed the government announced the lockdown for nationwide lockdown. Uh, and then I call the government when I got attacked in, in the social media. And that was a rumor came out from NHRC, my former office. The, some of his staff spread that rumor which was wrong and I called the police to investigate this. This is not a simple thing. So many people are stigmatized uh, since 10, 10 months. Uh, so many people are stigmatized in the name of religion, in the name of caste group, you know, and especially people in South Asia where, where casteism and untouchability exist is a, is a, is a very difficult very difficult. Right. And you, you said also at the beginning there that when you first came to Kathmandu, you also felt that people were threatened by you. And what I'm wondering is, not just in social media, but in society in general, do you feel like these prejudices, if you want to call it, or these divisions are growing? Or are they getting smaller. Uh, and I know social media can sometimes not reflect accurately the entire culture. But since you've, you know, you, you've moved here, do you think that things are changing for the better or no? Gradually, I feel this is a changing better, but uh, there is a, some, some personal biasness, actually, personal biasness. Okay. And just looking overall at the human rights situation uh, and reading, as I said, what you've written lately, I think it's fair to say that you're quite critical of the human rights situation and the work that's been done in general. And what I'd like to ask you is, today, if a young girl in class six came to you and said, you know, Mona, I, I know who you are. I know what you've done, your career, your work. Do you think that I should do the same thing that you did? Should I study law? Should I, you know, work for human rights and the Women's Commission? Given your experience to date, what would you say? Would you recommend that a young girl follow in your footsteps? Or would you tell them to go work for the INGO like you could have done uh, many years ago? No, I, I think I encourage uh, young girls and younger generation to join a law degree because law degree is not for only to fighting or practicing in a legal field. That will change your life. And that create a very different kind of society. If we get a lot of women lawyer and young women lawyer, we get like a different kind of society. Okay, well, that's, that's very optimistic. I'm glad to hear that. 
So we started off talking about you taking a break and relaxing, and, but it sounds like you're not really relaxing, especially because of these political events in the last few days. Can you say any more about what you may be doing in the future? Are you thinking of like working as a lawyer or would it be more about working with uh, the government again or working for maybe a grassroots NGO? I mean, what are you considering? Uh, I'm planning to do uh, more work on uh, uh, rule of law and human rights. I maybe start a legal practice. And also, I have a very keen interest to raise uh, you know, civil and political right, freedom of expression. This kind of issue is my core area where I can uh, do a very close and intensive monitoring, uh, as you know, the political, changing political scenario. I'm very much uh, working on that, maybe uh, country-wise uh, monitoring, specific monitoring and producing some very strong report because I know the protests are going to be start since two, three days. It's already started. This protest is going to be a nationwide. Okay, well, it's obviously going to be a very interesting time coming up. Uh, it's very uncertain. This happens regularly, it seems, in Nepal that we're on uncertain times. Uh, Mona Ansari, thank you again for coming on Nepal Now podcast. It was great to talk to you and learn a bit more about your career and your motivation. And I really hope that in future we get to see you doing something equally effective and, and high profile in the legal field and particularly human rights. So best of luck in the future. Thank you so much for inviting me and um, uh, it's allowing me to put my voices here. Thank you.